Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the idea of getting up on stage may terrify most of us, but actor Jeffrey Tambor knew from a very young age that was exactly what he wanted to do. And as long as he can recall, he wanted to give people his autograph. Tambor is an acclaimed stage and screen actor. He got his first professional break at Seattle Repertory Theater and went on to a long career of notable roles. But in 2014, his portrayal of Maura Pfefferman on the Amazon series Transparent took him to a new level. Jeffrey Tambor is the author of Are You Anybody? A Memoir. He spoke with Seattle-based author and Salon TV critic Melanie McFarland at Town Hall Seattle on May 23rd. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded their conversation. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Seattle Arts and Lectures' Rebecca Hoogs introduces the event. If there were a column called Celebrities, they're just like Seattleites. But of course, there wouldn't be, that's ridiculous. There would be many pictures of one man, Jeffrey Tambor. He's pale, he likes the rain, He not only loves to read, he owns a freaking bookstore, people. His first gig was at the Seattle Rep. He lived on Queen Anne, where he baked a lot of poorly risen bread in his downtime. Jeffrey Tambor is indeed one of us. His bread may not have risen, but Jeffrey Tambor has slowly to become one of the best actors of his time, exactly by being one of us. Maybe you discovered him on Three's Company or The Ropers or Hill Street Blues or Max Headroom. Maybe you joined the fan club when he played Hank Kingsley on The Larry Sanders Show. I joined the club after I'd had some minor stomach surgery and decided to recuperate by spending the weekend binging on this show I'd been hearing about, Arrested Development. That was a very bad idea. I couldn't stop laughing, even though it hurt so much. That exquisite dance between laughter and pain is what Tambor has done so well as Maura Pfefferman on Transparent, now headed into its fourth season. In the role, Tambor plays a transgender, divorced Jewish parent of three. It's a wonderfully complicated role for which Tambor has won an Emmy and a Golden Globe. One of George Bluth, a.k.a. Tambor's signature lines from Arrested Development is, no touching! And yet, over his long career as an actor and now a writer, he has touched us. We have been moved, we have laughed, cried. Yes, touching. Yes. Thank you, Jeffrey. Please join me in giving Jeffrey a huge and unusually warm Seattle welcome to Jeffrey Tambor. Hello, Jeffrey. (laughs) Hello. Is this a church? In a sense, yes, it is. Okay. So let's talk about your time in Seattle. Let's start that way. Um, you were in Seattle in 1977, right? 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the Seattle Rep. I think it was my first. It was my first pro job. Uh, I'd been in repertory before, semi semi pro, and I lived on Queen Anne Hill. And my rent was 125 a month. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's got to be up to 200, 250 now. That's and no, right. I didn't go up there, but um, I loved it. And I think, I think the people we rented from, it was my wife and I, my then wife and I, two cats, and all the tchotchkes you can imagine. And oh, I loved it. And I would walk down the hill to the Seattle Rep every day. And I'd never spent any time in the Pacific Northwest. And, it's, uh, and I, I'm from San Francisco, so I loved the rain. It did, there was a smattering of dust of snow one day. And I remember that I've never seen anything quite like that. The city just went, no. No, we don't, we don't do snow. And it just stopped. But I, I loved it. And I used to go to Pike Street Market and get my, well, I told you all that. I just, uh, I love the city. I love the people. It's great. I wanted to ask you about the bread a little bit. She mentioned the bread in the beginning. Yeah, what's with the I bread? I have never had problems <laughs> yeah. getting my bread to rise here. So I had what problems. do you think it was? What do you well, somebody actually told me. That's why. Someone said, the reason your bread is not rising, I guess maybe they're trying not to hurt my feelings. But they said, because are we, uh, is there something with the sea level here? Are we high, low? What are we? That's hysterical. I can't understand one <laughs> word you're saying. Is, is it high? It's low, so that's the reason. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my bread wouldn't rise. It sounds like the second book. <laughs> my bread wouldn't rise, anyhow. But let's talk about this book, Are okay. You Anybody? Yes. So if you guys have not read this, you really should. It's um, one of the funniest things I've read in a while. It's a very quick read as well. And one thing that I really love about it is that um, it's intensely personal. But at the same time, it also tells you a lot about a life in entertainment. But also, let's talk about the title. So what does Are You Anybody exactly mean? It's a literal, it's a literal illusion. I was doing Broadway. I was an understudy. But I had three lines in the play. I actually had one line that I said three times as a servant to George C. Scott. Remember George C.? In Sly Fox, directed by Arthur Penn. And the line was, you look wonderful, sir. I walked out of the stage door and I had my faux cashmere jacket on, $300 from Bloomingdale's, my hat, my scarf, you know. And there was a, it was pre-selfie, and it was, uh, uh, there, it was just autographs and uh, pre-sell and all that. And the guy, there was this legendary character who went from theater to theater to theater, and he would get autographs from, from people either coming out of the theater or people who had gone to the theater that night. And he looked at me as I came out, face to face, nose to nose, and he went, are you anybody? <laughs> and I looked at him back and blink, blink, and I went, no. <laughs> and I'll never forget that feeling because I went, I am nobody. Well, cashmere jacket or no. So that's sort of my entrance to that. But this is not about a book about getting an autograph, although that was my fondest wish as a young kid. But it's about becoming, I guess, Jeffrey, and becoming a father, and, and becoming a teacher, and becoming an actor, and becoming a citizen, and uh, the trials and tribulations. And I, 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 it's, I tried to write it 
like I talk. And, um, and uh, no other pretensions other than that. Just everybody needs a little a laugh, another, a little cry, and a little lesson. And that's what I tried to do. And this is also a book that was in, really inspired and written to your children, right? To my children who have absolutely no idea what daddy does for a living. I have a, a, a daughter in her late 30s. She's 41. <laughs> Sorry. And she hates when I do that. But she's not here. And uh, then we skip, skip a little bit and uh, we have 12. Gabriel, 10, Evie, and then two sevens, uh, Hugo and Eli. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's an interesting. And they, they uh, I would like them to know at the end of the day, and I mean that literally, <laughs> at the end of the day, what daddy, why daddy was walking around mumbling the way he did. And always, my daughter Evie said, I can always tell, she's 10 years old, she says, I can always tell when daddy's working on a role because he stares <laughs> into the distance. <laughs> in other words, um, well, you know, you're a writer. It's not a nine to five, it's 24 seven. You know, who knows when inspiration hits and things like that. And I would like them to know that a little bit. Right now they think I eat lunch for a living. <laughs> because they come to the set and we have lunch. And they think that's my, that's my W-2 form. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Evie actually said one day, and you, you have to understand, on one visitation they'll see Mora, or they'll see Oscar Bluth, or they'll, I'm now the voice of a burrito, for God's sakes, on TV. <laughs> any, any character that has a low voice on TV, they go, is that you? <laughs> so um, I'd like them to know a little bit about, about what, what I went through and why I am the daddy I am. Uh, uh, I would like them to know that and give them a little lift. And at the end of the day, I would like to know I am successful because of mommy and they, because they are my teachers. Literally, they are my instructors. Because at 70, you lose the book a little bit. And they've become the book. They teach me and they inspire me. And they are, as I say in the book, they're outrageous, they're uproarious, they, their attitude is, um, they're not afraid, um, they're, they're, they have heart, they have humor, which you can lose. Mm -hmm. You can lose humor. And they, they inspire me every day, so I would like them to know that. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of great stories in this book, and one of the things that's really wonderful about the format is that it's a life told in essay form. Um, it captures yeah, a lot of not, different... Yeah, it's not, uh, I was born in Buffalo on a cold, wintry night. <laughs> so talk a little bit about, what, what was your decision? Yeah, talk a little bit about Buffalo. Buffalo is, a, no. Um, <laughs> talk about Buffalo. Go ahead. But what about that? You were, we, when we spoke yesterday, you had mentioned that you actually wanted to write it. You wanted to achieve two things. Mm -hmm. You wanted to have it sound like your voice, which it does. Right. Um, if you watch enough of Jeffrey's work, you will hear him reading to you as you were reading this, which is significant that cap to capture voice in writing. But the second thing is you d made a deliberate choice to, um, to really render this in the format of essays. Mm -hmm. So they're really 
almost, um, they're attached but separate glimpses into yeah. life. So can you talk a little bit about that? I just took a shot at, uh, I go around the country, I, I'm with a, may I be shameless, APB speaking group, and I go around to universities and I talk. I, I love it, it's something that I love. You don't make a fortune doing it and it's hard. But I love talking to, to, to co people at, at, the at the colleges. And I tell stories about my life because the way I was taught and the way I teach um, is personal. And so, and the best directors ever are ones that are personal in their work. And you start talking about your life. So I, I talk about my kids, I talk about mom and dad, I talk about my uh, sobriety, I, I talk about everything. And I'm funny and I'm sad and um, these are stories. And someone finally just said, oh, oh I went to South, South by Southwest for, for about 10, 12 years and I would work in a workshop, and I loved doing that. And someone finally just said, you need to put this in a book. And I, I kind of went, hmm, ha, hoo, ha. Because I, uh, I honor writers so much that I went, oh, I don't know if we need another celeb book. You know, uh, and I'm, I, don't, uh, I don't say that lightly. I just, uh, but I, now I think I have something to say. And I read a book by Frank Langella, uh, and I think we talked about it. And it, it's a perfect book. It's just all, it's just all like uh, just slants on a life. And then you put that together and you get a life rather than, oh, I met this person and I met this person and oh, I was in that and then I co-starred in that. And uh, It's not that. It's, it's a life lived. And I, I like that. Do you mind reading one of my favorite chapters? Sure. He has this great chapter, it's called The Red Bowtie. And I'll have a question for you all afterwards, so. Take Is it away. What did you say? I said, take it away. Oh, I thought you said, take your time, and I went, I'll do what I want, thank you. <laughs> now take your time, don't rush. Wouldn't it be funny if you just started directing me louder, louder? <laughs> I told you it would be like this. Red Bowtie. I grew up in San Francisco, a magical place. Our first house was on 31st Street, which meant we were 31 blocks and change from the Pacific Ocean. It was foggy every morning, clear or overcast, and 60 degrees every afternoon, and the fog rolled back in on the dot at 5 p.m. The fog was moody, lovely, and taught me to love inclement weather. That's why Los Angeles and I never got along. It's sunny all the time. I am the Jewish son of Russian-Hungarian parents. I can't have sunny all the time. <laughs> My maternal grandparents, Yasef and Gertrude Salzburg, lived nearby, and my grandmother would sometimes babysit for me when my parents were away. She would bring her homemade pickles, dill, half-sour, garlic. She brought matzah and gefilte fish and herring. One time, she brought this wonderful cocoa, and she put a pot of milk on the stove. She spooned in the cocoa and a little sugar and stirred and stirred and stirred. When it was ready, she handed me a mug of it. Bliss. That same weekend, she brought me a gift, a red bow tie. To this day, I have absolutely no idea why. It was big and shiny, and I loved it. My parents used to take me out to dinner with them, 
and we'd all get dressed up, me in my charcoal suit and white shirt and that big, beautiful red bow tie. We would eat at Joe's of Westlake and order the legendary Joe's special scrambled eggs, ground meat, and spinach. But before we ate, my parents liked to have a drink at the bar in the lounge. I wasn't allowed to sit at the bar, so I would sit at a table by myself near the piano player, sipping my Shirley Temple. I loved to watch people, study their mannerisms and their gestures. It was as good as reading a book, a dark book with piano music and cigarette smoke. <laughs> my parents couldn't get over the fact that I never complained that we didn't eat until 9 p.m. People would come up to me and say, hello, little boy, what a beautiful t bow tie. And get this, they would give me money. <laughs> not pennies, not quarters, not half dollars. They gave me dollar bills. Some sat down to talk to me and tell me their stories. I became used to the smell of alcohol on their breath. One doctor sat down with me and told me about a patient he had lost that day. He had a martini with two olives in his hand and tears in his eyes. I couldn't get over all the attention, the stories, the sharing. I knew it wasn't because of me, it was because of it. The bow tie had magical power. This red, glittery thing made me feel confident and wise. I felt connected. I felt powerful. I felt helpful. I felt safe. I took that feeling with me when I walked to school or around my neighborhood. I felt it when my mom got me a new pair of kids and I would run around the neighborhood feeling like I was the fastest creature on earth. I remember thinking, this is the fastest I will ever be, ever. I even woke my parents up early one morning to tell them just that. They were unimpressed. I used to go to the soapbox derby races with my brother and my father every weekend. They were held outside the Harding Park golf course, not far from our house. My brother and I would watch the kids get in their go-karts at the top of the hill, and I was able to tell which one would win just by how the driver, the driver sat in the car. During each and every race, I would guess the winner. And I got it right every time. People started to place bets based on my guesses. Which one, son? People were making money on my say-so, including my dad and brother. I was invincible. And then one night when I was about eight years old, I was getting dressed in my little suit to go to Joseph Westlake and I, I could not find my red bow tie. I searched and searched, but no red bow tie. I went to my mother to see if she knew where it was. Come on, Jeffrey, we're late. But I can't find my red bow tie. What red bow tie? My red bow tie, the one Grandma gave me. Grandma never gave you. I wear a red bow tie. I always wear a red bow tie. There is no red bow tie. You never had a red bow tie. I was speechless. You have a small blue bow tie. That's the only one you have. Now go put it on and hurry. I went to my room, I got the little blue bow tie, and we, were, we went to Joe's. I sat with my Shirley Temple near the piano player as usual, but nobody talked to me. No one approached. Nobody gave me money. Nobody sat down and told me their story, 
Even the piano player was silent. I began to feel an unfamiliar sensation in the middle of my chest. Fear. My connection to the world was gone. My red bow tie was gone. Not only gone, it may never have existed. And now when we went to the soapbox derby, I was clueless about who would win. And when I walked around the neighborhood, I was afraid. I would spend the rest of my life looking for that red bow tie, trying to connect to that feeling it gave me, that access, that magic. I sometimes struggle to find it, and on occasion I do, and in the most unexpected places, on stage, on a set, in a grocery store, behind the wheel of a car in a strange town, in a book, as a sidekick, as twin brothers, and to no one's surprise more than mine, as a woman. I'm sure you noticed it, but I've read that twice now in public, and the same thing happens. I always go right to that emotion. And the first time I read it was uh, a week ago last at the 92nd Y, and I went, oh my God, I'm going to start crying. As soon as I brought it up, I, I, and so what I think is remarkable is not the writing, but you as a writer must know this. I went, as I was reading it last week, I went, oh my God, this is true. This really is true. Uh, not factually, but, you know, uh, it, it, to me. And I thought that was, uh, I thought that, I felt that uh, again. We all have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have the red bow tie, you know, and that's what uh, I, I, I'm glad we, we, we uh... and of course, since the, 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 the publication of the book, I have received so many red bow ties. <laughs> I mean, I, the closet is full. What are you going to do with all of them? Wear the red bow tie. <laughs> and go to a bar and start talking. So here's my question for the audience mm -hmm. really quickly. How many of you think that the red bow tie is real? Hmm. That's a great answer. How many of you think that it's a metaphor? That she, that, uh, oh, interesting. So what's the actual answer, Jeffrey? Is the red you mean the, real? the second people think I'm lying? <laughs> I came all the way to Seattle to get that attitude? We think you're not telling the truth. Um, it's real, it's real, and it's a metaphor. And uh, we, you know, these are the lessons that you put in your back pocket, you know? I don't know about the blue-red, I don't know about the blue, I do know that that little switcheroo happened where that conversation with good old Mamaire happened, where she said there was no tie. And that's where you went, was there a, you know. But it was really magical. It was, people gave me money, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, it, it became a losing, you know, capitalist proposition after that. <laughs> no. I think it has to do with the uh, uh, dreams, naivete. I think uh, as kids we know things and we can pick off things and then something happens. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very interested in that proposition. When we, 
lose the magic, and then you gain it back again. It's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, subject. And I see it in my kids all the time. They're savants, they get it, they just get it. They can read me, they can read every nuance. You know, and uh, it, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful lesson. We were talking a little bit about... Um, oh, can I say one more thing? Of I think course. It's, this is your show. Oh, that's right. Can I can say anything I want. I can just um, sit here and nod. I think what's interesting about that is when you took away the red tie, that feeling that, of fear. Because I remember, I remember that going, what the hell is that? What is that feeling of I'm afraid to leave the block? What was that all about? And you have a name for that fear, don't you? Mrs. Cohen. Yes. Old Mrs. Cohen. Old Mrs. Cohen. Yeah. Mrs. Cohen was the one who lived in, you know, you, she said, Mrs. Cohen lived in the back. And uh, you don't talk to Mrs. Cohen. And you say, Mrs. Cohen, Mrs. Cohen, do you see how, uh, how Trump went to Israel? She goes, see, how can I see? I live in the back. <laughs> and that's, that's the, the story. So I call her Mrs. Cohen, and you never talk to Mrs. Cohen. Um, when we were speaking earlier, we, we spoke yesterday, and mm -hmm. one of the things that you had mentioned was that there's a difference between an actor's nerves and a writer's nerves. Right. The actor's nerves, of course, you've spent many decades getting used to. But what is the difference with the writer's nerves? Um, in, in acting, you, the character is stuck with you, and you're stuck with the character, and you can express yourself through the character. But when you start talking about a red bow tie and talking about your family life or you're talking about your sobriety or you're talking about things or, that happened to you in repertory or mishaps and everything like that, I don't know, you think almost, you know, I had trouble, I mean, uh, 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 Tammy from, uh, from Crown is here tonight and we were talking about it that I, I couldn't hand over the book. Because, uh, and I kept saying, oh, I need another pass, I need another pass, I need a pass. And I know what it was all about. The book was ready. But I was afraid to let it go. In a way, I thought I was going to get in trouble. Then you are truly a writer, because I do that every day and drives my editors crazy. Do you think you're going to get in trouble? Yeah, oh, and you do trouble. get in trouble. Oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I was going to go, you know, you know, you don't, uh, there, I mean, there were things that happened in our family. We have the, every family has it around the, the Thanksgiving table where you have the family secret and you have the family thing and, 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 and you share that. And what's a memoir for? What are you going to do? Tell, tell somebody else's story? So I decided to tell a little bit. I, it's a good thing I handed it in because I started to, 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 you know, to move back a little bit. But, um, yeah, and those nerves and then even talking about it. Uh, is, is, is very hard on me. And then, <laughs> I don't even know how to sign a book. I mean, I, I just, I don't even know what to say. So it's, it's all very uh, wonderfully nervous mm -hmm. time, yeah. What do you put in a book when you sign it? And, and what's your general autograph? You practiced your autograph well, as a kid, so how's right. it turned out I used to go down, downstairs when we lived in San Francisco, and I would practice, well, I would do a show. I would do The Tonight Show. And um, I would have a chair and a chair <laughs> and a desk, and I would interview myself. <laughs> my poor parents upstairs. And I had a list, but so I talked to my, I would interview myself like this, and of course I would answer myself like this. <laughs> and for some reason I would get up and go to the other chair. There was no one watching. 
But then I would also do the laughter, the audience laughter. And I would, my laughter was very much, my grandma used to laugh like this, so I would laugh like my grandma, I would go <laughs> And I'm, my parents were right upstairs in the kitchen. I'm surprised they didn't arrange an exorcism. Because I was just, I, I don't know. And then I would sign autographs down there, best wishes, Jeffrey Tambor. Good luck on the playground today, Jeffrey Tambor. Have a great time in, you know, ugh. That's all I wanted to do, is uh, sign an autograph. And I would give them out in school. Mrs. Fisher would say, what are you doing? Best wishes, good luck today. <laughs> Have fun on the reading assignment, Jeffrey Tambor. The things we do. Do you get more requests for autograph for people who recognize you as George Bluth, George and Oscar Bluth, um, Maura Pfefferman, or? For instance, your characters from like Hellboy. Do you have Hellboy fans coming up and saying, hey? Or Hank Kingsley. Um, things that are shouted out of a window are, <laughs> hey now, uh, there's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> and now the new and favorite of mine is, yes, queen which is uh, transparent. Yesterday in the elevator coming down to meet Tammy, uh, a guy just, I just want to tell you how famous I am. The guy went, really loved you on Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> I said, that's not me. And they went, oh, it is you. <laughs> I went, it's not me. And I went, oh God, 20 floors of this and they wouldn't get off of it. That's the thing. And it's the first time that's happened. First time. That's Peter Boyle. <laughs> so what do you do in those situations? Do you just say, okay, thank you, or? I was trained by the great Henry Winkler, and Henry Winkler is the nicest person in the world. He is. Um, right? You've met him, and um, he, you always kind of look. I always try to say, what? he's gonna crack. He's not that nice, but he is. And he said, it's their first time, and it's your 500th or 499th or whatever, and, and be graceful, and it, it's right. So I always, I, I always say, I once said no, and it was in an elevator, and a, a, actually a bad thing had happened to me. I just had a, very, a terrible, terrible piece of news given to me, and I said, oh, it's not a good time right now, and the guy went off on me. Oh, so you're just too important. And again, I was in an elevator, Going up, and I went, and I, I learned my lesson. You always, you always try to be nice. My my kids don't like it too much, um, and uh, so I always try to, you know, be cool, or I'll have them join the picture and everything like that. Um, but people are uh, people are kind, I think. In New York, people they don't care. So I mean, they just, you know, yeah. What's been your greatest revelation in terms of what you've discovered about your fans or how people see your career after, in, when you're interacting with people? Are you saying the greatest revelation? <laughs> are, what are you saying? What's been your greatest revelation in terms of how people have seen you and how people have seen you through movies and television as you've kind of gone well, around? Well, the and... biggest revelation I've ever had was all I wanted to do was give that autograph. And the first time I gave an autograph, I, I watched it, what he, what he did with it. He took the autograph and he put it in his pocket and I went, and there was Peggy Lee singing, is that all there is? I went, oh, yeah. 
But, and this is going to sound glib, and I don't mean to sound glib, so I hope I say it right, but I feel sorry for you people getting my, and this is a good side, by the way. Um, um, but uh, we were coming back from a party, my wife and I, and she said, what's wrong? What's going on? I went, I wish somebody had told me. And, I, and she said, what do you mean? I said, it's just a party. You know, I always thought it was like a ball you know, like Cinderella and something like that. And it's just a party. And, and I, wish, I wish I had known that, but I guess you get that with age. And the real party, the real... And this is really the real reason for my book. The real red carpet for me is I have the two twin boys, Hugo and Eli, especially Eli, when I'm sitting there and I'm reading, they have a way, their 70-year-old way, of just getting on me and just... getting right there on me and just being there. They want nothing else to just be there on my lap. They're not watching TV. We're not doing anything, just being there. And I went, oh, well, that's, that's the red carpet. But it takes a little while to get that because you can feel their warmth in the back on you and you go, that's as good as that gets. But and there's just no way there's just no way to tell a young actor that who, who's just concerned about the billing or an and in front of your name and all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, the great, that's the biggest revelation uh, to me that, um, that the marquee has finally realigned to its proper billing. And it's not Jeffrey Tambor, bup, bup, bup. It's and Jeffrey Tambor. And that's, that's the big lesson. That's what I try to tell people. You know, you know, save your money. I always say save your money, which was said to me by David Goldberg. Is it David Goldberg who did Family Ties? Is that right? Is it? What? what? I got the first name right, David? And he said, save your money. And I remember going, save your money. He was, he was such a good guy. And I always say that to people. Uh, save your money, and uh, remember, remember your family, and don't cut, don't cut there. But the reason I say save your money is because I think the power to say no is one of the most powerful things. We talked about it the other day. It is one of the most powerful tools in a life that you go, no, thank you. It is so powerful, and you can't do that if you're worried about rent, car, whatever. And so I always tell my acting students, I've been a teacher for almost 50 years, I tell them, keep it low so you can say no. And we talked about, you know, transparent. Mm -hmm. and, and that was, your, your saying no actually got you that role, you said. It was very interesting. Um, Maura came along, and as God being the ironist that he, she is, uh, I saw the role on page eight, and I, I said, I'm in. And I just kept shouting it to anybody who would listen to me. Poor Jill Soloway, the great Jill Soloway, when, she, when we met the next day, I just kept saying, I'm in. And she would say another sentence. I said, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I knew it was 
landmark. I, I knew it. I knew it was the property and the role of a lifetime. And I ran, I ran for it. At the very same time, I was offered a series on network TV, uh, or as my mother used, my mom and dad used to say, two, four, or seven. <laughs> I would say, hey, I'm on MASH, and they say, what number? And I'd say two, and they went, oh, two, we get two. Two is good. Don't, don't do seven, because that's kind of wavy. Don't do anything on seven. So I, I uh, uh, and I remember one of the agents that I had then uh, said, um, no, still, uh, said, um, um, you know, uh, you know, you should do this. And, that, and, and I, I remember going, and I went, no, thank you. It caused a lot of trouble. It caused, it caused a little bit of a ruckus. Uh, and, um, uh, and then I remember, this is interesting. I just remembered this. The producer got really angry at my, uh, my then agent, and, and, and I, I got on to him. I said, leave her alone. I made that decision. I did that. And he, he, he actually backed me up and said, he actually affirmed what I was doing. He was very brave. And you have to figure out, here we are on Amazon TV, it's streaming, it's a baby studio, it's Maura Pfefferman, who is uh, uh, transitioning from, from uh, uh, a parent. You know that I did not get this. This is how intelligent I am. Do you know that I did not get the irony of the title? <laughs> I mean, I can't about four weeks in, I went, that. oh my God. I said it right, right in front of Jill. I think she thought I was fooling around. I went, oh my, I thought it was about being transparent. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I remember other actors saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? I remember a friend of mine saying, you know, who had trouble with the subject matter, and he and I are still a little dicey about this, you know, uh, 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 but, Man, you got to follow your nose. You know, that's what my kids have taught me. And that's what, that's what I'm trying to do in that book. You follow that nose. Here's the thing. I found out that a dream is not something that go, oh, I can't wait. Oh, a dream is one that you go, oh, boy. I have to get up for this. This one is going to cost. A dream is worthless if it doesn't cost and is likely to disappoint people. Right? And that's, Amen. that's yeah, and that's what I. Yeah. And luckily, I have a, a great wife who is just, um, I do this exercise. Um, take your hand and put your hand, other hand underneath, just gently, all right? Now, just let it rest there, all right? That's called support. <laughs> and the reason I do that is because that's all it is. But you have to have people around. The thing, the revelation that I have is to do a dream or to do the moras or whatever those things that are those, or that draft that you go, you know, you have to have a support system around you that, that allows you to do that. That's what you have to build. 
And that's what I try to write about in the book because I've been around so many actors who've stopped. Most of the actors that I've taught over the years have stopped. And I've had some actors who are 20 times more talented than I. And I, I'm, I'm curious as to why people stop. That's sort of what the book is about, Are You Anybody? Because I don't know how I got here except, except you know, that, as you say, that fire in the belly. Am I making any sense? You're making complete sense, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know that some folks have some questions, so if you have a question, just write it down on a card and get it to your usher. That's and hysterical. And I'll be happy to, <laughs> to read them to for usher. you. Yes, and while we're waiting for the ushers to get those cards, I'm gonna ask you about another favorite chapter of mine that actually um, happens to share the name of my motto, which is fuck em. Fuck em. I love fuck em. It's not fuck you. Nope. It's not fuck it. It's called fuck em. Fuck em. Fuck em. It's a great chapter. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude um, that, uh, that I was taught. I went, to a, I went to a Greek restaurant called the Great Greek in, um, in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. And I, I walked in, and I thought I was something. I said, I'd like a nice table. And the guy gave me a table, the maitre d' gave me a table very near the kitchen. And I went, what the heck's that about? So I went in the next night, and I said, I said to the maitre d', I would like the worst table you have, and I would like to wait as inordinately long as possible. <laughs> and this little smile came across his face. And he gave, gave me the head table and the best table in the restaurant. And I went, hmm. I sat there, and then mid-meal, mid, mid I got up and I went over to the front of the restaurant, and I, I tapped him and I said, I think I know what just happened. I just want to thank you very, very much. And I'm sorry for my attitude the previous night. And he said, fuck him. <laughs> and... Here's my take on it, and we talked about this the other day. It's an attitude that, at the end of the day, you want to fire me, fire me, but I'm going to give you my best. But I'm not going to be afraid of you firing me. And I'm not going to be afraid of you disliking me. And as we talked about, you know, this is, it's not me, I'm way above my, my, my talent level, but this is what Pollock, Jackson Pollock did when he went, fuck him. I'm just not going to play the realistic game. I'm not going to give you a, a portrait. I'm going to give you this splattering. I actually stood in his studio, in Jackson Pollock's studio, and saw that studio, and saw that on the floor, and I went, well, that's fuck em. <laughs> And this is what, where, where uh, you know, uh, we were talking about Tintoretto. Yes. Uh, and uh, Tintoretto took the, the Madonna and the baby Jesus, and rather than center in the Renaissance, he put it off center. And it created quite a fury. He was almost excommunicated. But that's fuck him. He's saying, here's the baby Jesus, fuck him. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an important attitude um, that has backfired on me I re <laughs> many times. I remember the Coen Brothers audition that I went to. Um, for that wonderful film, and they, I was up for the rabbi. Oh, God. The rabbi, first of all, I drove in, and they said at the gate at Fox Studios, 
or maybe I don't know if it was so or so it was Sony, and I, I and they said you don't have a drive on. I went oh I, and they said you have to park in the parking lot. So I, I drove in and then I made a left turn and I went all the way to the bungalow, and I took this is fuckem, I took a the the orange cone out of the parking lot. Oh, you know where this is going, right? I took the orange cone that was reserved for somebody, and I I took that parking space for my audition. You scared the hell out of me. <laughs> my God. This just in, Jeffrey Tambor died this evening in Seattle. He, um, anyhow, um, and so I went in and the, there were the Coen brothers and the casting director, who was a little late and came in. She was very, you know, flurried and just kind of like, oh, what's going on? And there was a reason for that. Uh, you got it. And uh, the Cohen brothers, one of them, Ethan or Joel, said, uh, what part do you want to read, the rabbi or the, or the uh, lawyer? And I said, I'll read the rabbi. Uh, the lawyer, you can do better. There was a look that transpired between these two genius directors. Well, I don't think anyone has ever said that to him. And then, in back of them, the casting director went like that. And I read the, and then as I was reading, I saw her put two into two together and saying, that mother is in my parking space. <laughs> so, and as you can see, my fuck em attitude, I, I've yet to appear in a Joel uh, and Ethan Cohen <laughs> film. So, easy on that advice. <laughs> no, it's a good way to lead, lead your life. Yeah. What are the questions? All right, here's a great one. What do you like? or admire most or least about Maura Pfefferman? I love Maura. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything that I dislike about her. Uh, I like that she's... When I first met Maura Pfefferman, it was room at 609 in the Fairmont Hotel. Zachary Drucker and Reese Ernst, my trans teachers, made me up for the first time, because I'm tight. And I, I remember looking up and seeing her, and she averted her eyes, and then she looked and she smiled, and then averted her eyes. She was very shy, and she was afraid that she wasn't pretty, and I think she was pretty. And, we, and we've become very good friends. She's smarter than I more intelligent than I, has a better sense of humor than I, has better word choice than I, and has affected me deeply, and I'm following her. Um, she is the life lesson that I've been looking for. Now, here's the very interesting thing. My mother was not warm and fuzzy. She was, she was tough. Things were tough in the Tambor household. You read about it in the book. The corridors were alive, and uh, it was it was tough. And mom and I were desperate, desperate enemies. Mora has this gesture. As I was watching dailies one day, I went. That's my mother's gesture. 
My mother used to sit at the table like that. And I went, this is why God made a circle. This is why it comes all the way around. So that's the lesson that I, I get. There's nothing I, she's petty, <laughs> she, she's jealous, she's scared, man. She's lonely, she can't relate. She doesn't know how to make up yet. She doesn't know how to, when she goes to the LGBTQ center, she doesn't really quite belong because she's of an age. She doesn't quite know if that dress works or not, if her hair works or not. I, I told you about, maybe I didn't tell you, I went on a, um, a, um, a sort of a trial, they were an experiment, and we went out, I said, let's take her shopping. So I dressed, we dressed up and I, put on my, you know, I thought Maura, when she would go shopping, would, would dress up. So I dressed up. Anyway, I'm in this market in North Hollywood, and I'm going up and down the aisles, and I stopped in one aisle, and I looked, and there was a guy looking at me. He stopped and he looked at me. And that smile on that guy's face was so ugly. Now, he either thought, one, that's Jeffrey Tambor. <laughs> and... It could be, but I think not, because my makeup was really good. But I think he thought that person is trans, and I'm having trouble with that. And I got, as they say, clocked. And it was so ugly, and it so threw me, and I remember saying, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget it. And then I recovered, and we went outside, and. Zachary's a great teacher. She goes, we're going to go outside and eat. And I went, oh, no. And so we went outside, and she goes, all the tables were taken, and she goes, go sit over there. And there was a gentleman sitting there, and he was on his, uh, on his uh, phone. And I said, oh. she goes, sit. So we sat there, and the guy was looking up, and he looked at Zachary, and he looked at me. And Zachary's beautiful. And we, we were... Uh, sitting there and I was eating and the guy got through with his messaging and he looked up and he looked at me and he went, have a good day, ladies. And when he left, we high-fived like it was a, <laughs> as if we were so, so it was a, 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 great, a, a great learning experience. So Maura's leading me uh, and teaching me as, as we go. And I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't have that tap, tap, tap of nervosity and do it right, do it right, because lives are at stake. And I, I'm not speaking metaphorically, I'm talking literally. And um, there's not a week that goes by that where, where someone doesn't say something just beautiful or talks about their, people come up to me on the street and say things about their kids or their family or just talk to me about the Pfeffermans. And, and then there's the odd tweet that says you should be ashamed of yourself. So the revolution is, is here, it's happening. But I will tell you that Evie went to the set, my 10-year-old, and we, my wife and I went, oh gosh, this is gonna be interesting. Um, Daddy, uh, hmm. Well, Daddy's playing this, hmm. Daddy looks like, and Evie interrupted us, and she wasn't 10, she was about, she was nine. And she said, hey guys, I understand, I get it. Daddy's playing a character who's more comfortable being a woman. From the mouth of babes. That's really beautiful. Now, someone wants to know, 
Have you taken any props home from shows you've worked on? If so, what did you keep? If not, what do you regret that you didn't steal? Whoever wrote that note, see me afterwards. Um, <laughs> I have a therapist that um, could help us both. Um, that's interesting. I do, I do, when I'm out of town doing a film, what I do take is huge amounts of food back to my house. And it's a joke. Rob Hubel, um, who's in, who plays uh, um, the husband on the show and is a very good friend of mine, used to laugh openly at me because I would have styrofoam boxes as I got into the car. Um, uh, I would say that would be my... Uh, uh, I, you can't steal a prop. Oh, I'm it's sure happened. I have, but what? It's, I mean, other actors have. They've openly bragged about it. Uh, well, Much later. Oh, I can't remember that I, I did. Um, I did steal a flashlight from Woolworths when I was seven years old. <laughs> and the guy from Woolworths in San Francisco not only took me aside, and I was the last one, my friends Eddie Google and whatever the rest of the guys got away, and he locked me in a closet. <laughs> and when my father came to get me, they, he said, oh, we have him here, and it, it was in, I was in a closet. And now we know why you've never stolen any props. Right. I don't think I have. <laughs> but I stole the flashlight. Let me go. Let me go. I don't think so. <laughs> All right. This is a really good one. Do you see a common thread between the characters of Mora from Transparent, oh, yeah. Hank from the Larry Sanders show, and George Bluth from Arrested Development? And if so, what does that say about your choices as an actor? Not, not George, because I think George is the ultimate Darwinist. But Oscar, yes. Uh, I think Hank and Oscar and Mora are very vulnerable. And I do have that proclivity in my, in my I guess in my wheelhouse, in my swing. Yeah, in my swing, that's good. Um, uh, and I think Hank being maybe the loneliest character I've ever played, and I loved Hank. When Gary passed, all I could think of was not only Gary, whom I love and loved, but Hank, because Hank would have been destroyed. He lived for Gary. Uh, but. Oscar has that vulnerability, and Mora has that vulnerability. And I think that's my, my go-to place. And I am, in the list of fallibilities, I am too sensitive uh, uh, by half in my personal life. I get, I, I get my, my feelings are hurt now, just the way you're looking at me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I'll turn slightly this way to ask this next question. And shout out to whoever, uh, the fellow nerd who decided to make this a Hellboy question. Was Hellboy as much fun to make as it was to watch? Oh yeah, Guillermo del Toro. Um, the great, why oh, should I say this? Should I? Well, how do you know what I'm gonna say? I wasn't cast. Uh, an actor uh, dropped out. Should I say who it is? I mean, yes. you probably won't know him, Larry Miller. Um, and he dropped out, and they asked me, they asked me, and Guillermo called, and it was a comic book. I went, 
And I remember being in New York and Guillermo called me. Guillermo del Toro, Ron Perlman, Selma Blair. Give me a break. Prague, Hellboy. It was like the genius of Guillermo del Toro. And I remember you would go to Video Village. That's where you go and look at what you've done on the camera. And I remember Guillermo was so grateful that we had done this. No one had ever done that, Hellboy. And his scenic sense and his... I was enwrapped. It, it, it was great. It, it, it was great. And now, um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun to watch, yeah. for sure. Okay, so we have a, uh, a fan here who wants to know if we can have a hey now. And if I were to say no... Where are you? I, I, I won't judge. Where are you? Okay, ready? Hey now. <laughs> you know, the hey now that you hear on uh, Howard's show was done almost 35 years ago uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning because Howard and Robin came out to Los Angeles and to do it at 7 o'clock here, that was at four o'clock in the morning there. And as I left after my uh, interview, he went, oh, can you do a hey now into the microphone? Oh, sure. Hey now. And that's it. That's the one. Imagine if I got paid for each one. <laughs> Howard's great. And when he came and did the, uh, the Gary Shandling show, he was, like, he was so wonderful. He was so just, he was, he was great. He's a good actor. Mm -hmm. Have you seen him in private parts? Mm -hmm. It's great. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, he's a lot of a lot, but he's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here's one. My husband and I are absolutely obsessed with cocaine, the story of one man's seduction. Oh, I thought you were obsessed with cocaine <laughs> and you were seeking treatment. And I went, no, I can't. The question is, what was it like to make that? That's a very good question. I did, a, a, that was with, the one with Dennis Hopper, yeah? And um, I... I had to do my first scene because of the, the economics of that, that filming. I had to do my cocaine scene uh, uh, almost the first day, first or second day, and I remember going, oh my God. And so I had quit coffee completely. I was off coffee. So what I did, because I was surprised, I didn't know they were doing that scene that day, I went to craft service, and I drank co coffee after coffee after coffee after coffee, and I was, I did the scene. I was a mess for days, for days, but I did that scene. But I have to tell you, I was doing, dun, da, 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 da. what's that? Lehu, lehu, lehu. Uh, yeah, Sound of Music, at the, um, sorry, at, the uh, uh, at this theater. Uh, the Hollywood Bowl, of all things, 19,000 people. And I was backstage afterwards, and a person came backstage and said to me, and I remember saying, what you do is very important, because people, uh, people rely on the truth and of what you say and what you do. That testified to me that that saved his life, mm -hmm. that portrayal and that show. So you never know. Even when I was doing, I remember visiting my father who was, who was he, he was 
going out the door, uh, leukemia, and he was at the John Muir Hospital in Walnut Creek. And I would go up and meet, uh, just uh, visit him every weekend. I, would do, I was doing the Ropers. And a little ashamed of it. <laughs> and I would go up there in the weekend, and I would walk through the, uh, the cancer ward on my way to Dad's room. And I remember one time I was watching there, and my show was on. And I remember the people were laughing, and I went, Laughter, you understand? So it's, I've always thought when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I always thought acting was important. I always thought it was about health. Mm -hmm. I always thought laughter was about health. And I think it is. I, I think it is actually Darwinian, that it is a way of surviving. It's a way of learning. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, um, if you, uh, you look at shtetl humor and all that, it's all, very much that way, and I think it's, um, uh, anyway, that's my that cocaine, uh, that's my cocaine story. It's <laughs> a good one. Oh, this is, this is great. What would the Bluth family think about the current state of American politics, and how would they find humor in it? Well, I think George is just saying everything's just going great. <laughs> and uh, he would say, I told you about the wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, or maybe not. Uh, that's very interesting. Now, you know, we just finished, this is my life and how lucky a person I am. We just finished the fourth season of Transparent. And a week ago last, we heard that Arrested is being picked up on... Uh, yeah, it's going to be back. So, I'm very anxious to see what Mitch Hurwitz and team are going to do. I know they're going to go right at it. And I think whether you're whatever, wherever you are in the political spectrum, we do need satire right now to learn, right? We need humor to learn right now. I can't think of a time where uh, the Max Perelmans and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 real, the real writers and the Joseph Hellers and those people who knew, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, what would, he, what would he write right now? You understand? And we need that humor. We need that satire. A book that changed my life was Catch-22, where it just, right? And it, it just changed the whole spectrum of the Vietnam War. And we need, we need another novel like that. We need another, we need to turn like that. We need to get a pr uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's... Definitely what you were saying about laughter being Darwinian. Yeah. We really do need that yeah. right now, certainly. And that's what Jill Soloway knows in Transparent. She knows that there's laughter at a funeral. And there's, can I tell my story about my dad? Where I learned. The, this is your show. Tell oh, that's right. story you'd like. This is my show. My, da <laughs> my dad had to go home from John Muir Hospital. This taught me about humor. And... It also taught me about economy and acting. We had to say goodbye to his nursing staff, and they loved him. And I remember his favorite nurse, as, as he passed going out the door, his nurse said, bye, Barney. And I, I remember it was as if she had done Lear, because it was in those two words, it was so, it was everything. I took him home, and my mother was going to play the scene, oh, I am the 
grieving wife, and she's going to do the, you know, the drapery, looking out the, out the window, and I'm going to drive him home. I drove him home. We get out there. There's mom. We get out of the car. He had lost so much weight that his pants fell around his ankles. <laughs> mom went, like that. <laughs> So that scene was over. <laughs> Dad and I looked at each other. I was so horrified. And then he went. <laughs> and we started laughing so hard. When my mom kind of went back to the drape, she saw two people pounding the car roof just and crying. We were crying. And it was. It was, an, uh, it was an episode of grief played out in laughter. And I, I, re I remember saying, as we, were, as we were doing that, I went, don't ever forget this, because this is true laughter. And this is what it's about. It was a big lesson for me. It's survival. All right, tell us how your, this is quite the whiplash transition, tell us how your understanding of transgender issues has changed since playing Mora. Uh, from ignorance. I grew up in San Francisco, thought I knew everything, grew up in theater, in the gay community, San Francisco being liberal. I thought I knew everything, and I knew nothing. And still know nothing. I mean, you have to understand, I'm a cisgender male. So at the end of the day, it's not quite true. I was going to say, at the end of the day, I put on my costume and I go home, because I, I don't quite, because Maura travels with. You don't leave Maura in the dressing room, she comes with. But for me to say that I know what the trans experience is like is, is, is ridiculous. I know it is, it is I, I know what being an ally is. I know what being an actor is. I know what being a citizen is. I, knew, I know what fighting for the rights of people is about. Oh. Uh, and I, I know that lives are at stake. And my job is to do Mora right. And my fervent hope is that I will be, if there were to be another Mora, it to be a transgender actor. That's what I have learned, and I'm all about that. And not, this is not bragging, it's something I asked to do, but I teach acting, an acting class at the, at the LGBTQ uh, Center in Los Angeles. And the talent in that room, uh, this is my second year doing it, is so vast. And the, the stories are so vast. So if I'm doing anything right now, I'm, I'm, I'm urging employment, 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 hire these actors, create these roles, bring these stories forward. It's, it's very, very important. So there's an opportunity here for you to say hi for, to someone like you do in your book. Can you say a few words about what it was like to work with Larry Sanders? Thanks, Jan and Steve. You mean work with Gary? 
It says with Larry. Well, Gary Shandling, yeah. Well, do you mean Gary or, or Larry? Larry Sanders. Jan and Steve, did you mean the character Larry Sanders, or did you mean the actor Gary Shandling? I'll talk about Gary Shandling. Okay, there you go. I mean, after all, it's my show. <laughs> Gary Shandling was the kindest of geniuses. He changed my life. There was before Gary, and there was after Gary. I, I can't speak enough about what he did uh, and who he was. When I won the Golden Globe, I got a text from him backstage. I almost fainted backstage. I was so nervous. And I, I got a, my phone rang, and I got a text, and it was Gary. And the text was, I'm standing in my kitchen crying. He was so supportive of me. He so got me, and he taught me a big lesson because when I landed with, when I saw the It's a Gary Shandling show, I said, whatever he's doing is what I always thought comedy was. But no one has allowed me to do it. It was formless. He came out and he talked like this. And he looked, he broke the fourth wall and he, he looked into the audience and he said, all right, so I'm going to go pee now and they're going to run the credits. And then they did that funny song, It's a Gary I Shandling love show. I theme song. And which he and Alan Zweibel apparently wrote in an elevator on the 40 floors, and by the time they got to the lobby, they had written it. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I said, whatever he's doing, I do. And, and I was auditioning for Alan Zweibel, and the project was, Alan and I looked at each other, I went, I don't want to do this. And, and he didn't want me to do it. And, but he said, let me call somebody. Do you mind if I call somebody? And they were having trouble with Hank. They were having trouble casting it. A week later, I was, I was in that office, but Gary got me. He, he got it. And he taught me that you work with people who get you. You see, I used to be the actor. I would go into the room, and I'd always pick the person who didn't want me. And I would spend my whole day trying to please that person. Meanwhile, there's 15 people who are going like that, and there's one person going like that. And I just realized... Well, that guy just needs therapy. It's not even about me. <laughs> and I, it, was a, it was a big lesson to me that, so in, in the trifecta that I've been able to form of, and I talk about it in the book, I have Gary, I have Mitch Hurwitz, and I have Jill Soloway, and they all are actor-centric. They're all, they all get me, and I get them, and that's the secret, that's the formula. Work with people who get you. Marry people who get you. Um, um, I just remembered my mother used to say, don't marry them, you'll only hurt them. <laughs> oh, it's, read the book. That's nothing. That's, that's summer. Um, so he was, he was, he was quite, he was, he was quite something, and Hank was very, very real to me, and uh, it changed my career. My agent called me and said, this changes the game. She said it twice. She said it that week, and when I uh, finally said yes to Transparent, or they, more, more truthfully, they said yes to me, and uh, she said, this changes the game. Yeah, and Transparent really, um, one of the best stories in the book is when you talked about it coming full circle in terms of starting out with Jane Fonda on 9 to 5. And right. 
than having her present you the Golden Globe. Right. The transparent. Yeah. Example, another example of the She story. fired me. Jane, Jane fired me. Um, actually, Bruce Gilbert fired me. I called one day. I was standing backstage ready to go on, and I heard we got picked up, and I said, oh, I, I, hear, we were, I hear we're being picked up. And Bruce, they said, hold for Mr. Gilbert. And Mr. Gilbert, God bless him, poor guy. And he said, he got on the phone, and I said, congratulations, I'm so excited. Oh, well, great. And he said, hey, Jeffrey, you know, we're going another way. And I went, oh, great, which way are we going? <laughs> and I, he said, no, Jeffrey, we're going another way. I said, you know, I have some notes. Now, are we going away that... I went on for, I mean, minutes. I'm going, you know, and another way we could be going. And then poor guy had to say, hey, pal, hey, buddy, you're gone. You're out of here. The irony is I had to hang up that phone and do a three-act play, a Fado farce. And I had just been fired. And I did it, and my leading lady afterwards said, you did a very interesting performance tonight. <laughs> She goes, you were on time, you were on cue, everything was great, but you never lifted your head. <laughs> Apparently, I did the whole, whole thing like this. That was horrible. And then, on the Golden Globe, I, I, was, I was pretty sure that I was not going to get it, you know. Um, you know, that's my story, and that's my deal, and I, I write about it. It's just, you know, I just don't have the... Anyhow. My dad was all about, shh, 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 don't say anything, don't say anything, they'll take it away from you. Don't celebrate, they'll take it away from you. That was his, it was on the napkins. It was over the house. It was, dad, 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 I'm on MASH, don't say anything, don't, shh, don't say anything, don't, don't say anything. Dad, dad, I'm getting married, don't, shut, shut. Don't say, don't even tell her, don't say anything. So finally, I'm sitting there at the Golden Globe, and I'm going, I'm not going to get this puppy. I know it for sure. And, and I, I hear him going, shh, 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 like that. And then Jane walked out to announce, and I went, oh, I got it. Because God is an ironist. And I went, I got that sucker. And um, I was so thrown by it, and I didn't pay attention to the cameraman, and I got lost on the way to the stage. I don't know if, if you, uh, Conan O'Brien made fun of it. I actually ended up way over somewhere, and by the time I hit the stage, the audience had stopped applauding. <laughs> it was terrible. But memorable. Yeah, but memorable. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So this card asked, tell us about the journey of your sobriety. Okay, so this uh, February 15th, I will be sober 16 years. But the night is young. Um, Mom was alcoholic, and my brother Larry died from it. And my parents had to bury their first son. Some fool told mom and dad when he, comes home, when he comes over for a drink on his way to, on his way home, uh, not to allow him in and shut the door. It's a terrible piece of advice. And 
They loved him. He was the first Jewish son. He was the Eagle Scout. He was the president of the congregation. He was my hero. He was Larry Richard Tambor, the greatest. And he died two months later. And my dad just closed up shop. He just, that was it. He just, he Pasadena. And she never recovered. And she was drinking very, she, she, she was alcoholic. So I think, literally, I think I kind of went, yes, sir, I will follow in your footsteps. I will carry the banner of your alcohol. And I, I started drinking. When my dad started, I, I, I drank. And I literally, uh, I think it was my therapist who just said, did you ever think you might be alcoholic? I went, Psh, are you kidding? And he says, what do you... Where did your brother die of? I went, oh, alcoholism. He goes, and your mother was alcoholic. And your sister, blah, 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 blah. And, I, and, and it was one of those things that just went bingo. And I, I got sober. I just went to, I just went, I just started taking, you know, um, I just decided to lead a, a more ethical life. I'm, I'm surprised I'm alive. I did things. They're in the book. I'm trying to sell the book. It's so cheap what I'm doing. It's in the book. Um, but there were things I did. I'm surprised I made it. I mean, I did some things. So um, I, I, I'm surprised I'm sitting here. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Well, I wanted to ask you that question because I did want to touch on part of the sense of what makes this book so extraordinary. And I think that you've given us here a sense of how funny your life has been and how funny just living can be. But at the same time, there's also some parts in here where you have really um, kind of overcome and, and done the harder side of living too to bring you to like the sweet stuff. The ballet dancer to leap. If leap is the laugh, the leap is made by a plie. Right? Any dancers in the room? The plie is the rough stuff that you have to go through in life. And the more you plie, the more you can leap. So that's, that's the thing. And I said it, as a, the dog dies, if you're a civilian and citizen, the dog dies, you grieve, and your life is worse. As an actor, the dog dies, you grieve, but your actor, acting gets better because the paint becomes more vibrant. And that's, that's the real admixture of life. And those are the authors we love that make us laugh and make us learn. And uh, um, uh, the story about my dad is, is true hilarity, but it's also true grief. So the plie, those things, those bumps are, I think, are the source of my humor. I think I developed a sense of humor. I don't say this too much because it, it sounds a little luxury, but I, to live, to survive. I think I said, if I can make her laugh, I got a little time to think. And that was my whole invention of humor, is make her laugh so I can think. And then, <laughs> now here I am in this church. <laughs> I think we have
have time for one more question. Is one more question, and then I really have to lie down. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were talking about this, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, um, you co-own a bookstore. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I own and a bookstore. And actually, a friend of mine actually sent me a note saying it's the best damn bookstore. Yeah, Skylight Bookstore and on the east. Uh, I'm an investor, and what I get to do is go places and go, I own a bookstore. I do nothing. I do nothing, but I, I grew up in bookstores and public libraries. My, I, I'm alive because of a public library. Mm -hmm. But your question is? Yes, my question is, where would you put this book in your bookstore? What section? Well, we got into that the other day because I went, uh, first of all, I'd put it in the window. <laughs> I'm very interested because tomorrow night I'm going to be in my bookstore in, in, in Los Angeles. I'm, Really curious where that baby is placed. Uh, and I was gonna, I, I never thought about it because I, well, I thought, well, it's a memoir or however you say that word or whatever. But you tell me what you said. Here's what I said I think it should be in the memoir section, but also in inspirational. And for people who are really kind of wanting to find out what it takes to be an actor, kind of a how to, so you could put it in the how to section. Um, I think it could go in multiple places. I, right. think it's I think one more place, the children's section. The children's section. <laughs> because I'm a child. Yeah, definitely. I am a child. That's a, the that's a thing. I, I, I have kept that, to be childlike, to be silly. I do funny walks in groceries. I wave at people uh, as I drive. I go, hey! That, that's very interesting, by the way. Because <laughs> they go, oh, everybody loves Raymond, great! <laughs> Wasn't that funny? I do get that. I get also uh, a love. Thank you so much for all of your advice, Dr. Phil. You've helped me so much. <laughs> Great. I'm glad I could be of service. How's that going for you? What's the funniest uh, celebrity that you've been incorrectly recognized as? Should we go there? I think we should. Why not? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm not making fun of him. Um, because, um, uh, and he's an honored friend of mine uh, and a wonderful person, but a lot of people think, uh, I, I get a lot, a lot of people scream, get off my train, <laughs> and think I'm that actor, uh, that wonderful actor in Ghost. I'm not. So I, I get that uh, quite a bit. I once had a waiter say to me, <laughs> people would say, as he put down the thing, he went, I like some of your work. <laughs> and I think we were at salad at, at that time. Why would anybody say that? People, people get, get crazy. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you want them to be just a little more friendly than honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Thank you so much. Do you know how good you are? See, this is why, this is why, right now, this is what I'm feeling. Thank you. You did a great job, and you teed me up great, and you made me feel, thank you for coming out. Yeah, thank it's you, like everyone. This has been really fun. You guys have made it amazing. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Jeffrey Tambor is the author of Are You Anybody? A Memoir. 
He spoke with Seattle-based author and Salon TV critic Melanie McFarland at Town Hall Seattle on May 23rd. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.